Okay. So ready to go. Second Kings 13, 14 through 21 is where it will really be our focus, but we'll look earlier in that chapter. Also, the title of the lesson this morning is One Last Miracle, and we're talking about Elijah's life, and there'll be a final miracle there that is uh, connected with him. And in that, uh, my slide didn't quite make it all the way, did it? Elijah's coming to the end of his life in 2 Kings, the 13th chapter. King Joash is king over Israel, and he comes to see Elijah as he is about to pass from this world. And the nation still needs to turn back to God. And with the ministries of Elijah and Elijah, that's certainly what God has been trying to do, is to turn this nation back to him. So I'm going to pull up these three points. There is the need to turn for the nation of Israel. There is a partial turn. We will see that in 2 Kings 13. And then we'll see the power to turn also. So I'll bring up the first slide. The need to turn. Elijah is the main prophet at this particular time in Israel's history. And we saw him come on the scene in 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, whenever Elijah was the one who passed the mantle to him. And according to God had told Elijah that Elijah was going to be, or he was supposed to anoint him. But at the particular time when you read 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, when Elijah is called, he is out plowing in the field with oxen. Now, I just want to stop and make a brief point about that, because oftentimes whenever we think about these men who serve God in the Old Testament and these prophets, we just kind of automatically, our minds go to this man of God, this prophet of God, and Elijah was a blue-collar worker. <laughs> he was out in the field. He was plowing with these oxen. He was a young man. And Elijah comes and he is going to anoint him as the next prophet in Israel. Elijah then leaves that work. He leaves the farm and he follows after Elijah. And there's a little bit of an overlap period there that we've studied where Elijah is still around, but Elijah is now going to be the prophet to follow after him. And then we see that transition in 2 Kings, the second chapter, where Elijah is taken up, and then Elijah, the mantle falls to Elijah, and he becomes the main prophet. And then, it's preaching, it's teaching, it's miracles, it's raising people from the dead, it's making axe heads to float. It is curing a town's water supply. There are numerous miracles that are attached to Elijah and his life. And this morning we're going to take a look at one. But as we think about Elijah, and we think about this nation, and you think about what God has been trying to do through Elijah, and through Elijah and is to turn them from Baal worship, to false, from false religion, from apostasy and from unfaithfulness back to him. I want to read to you from 2 Chronicles, the 7th chapter, before we get right into the 2 Chronicles, the 7th chapter. And this is what God has been trying to do all along. 2, King, or 2 Chronicles 7, chapter, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven 
and I will forgive their sins, and I will heal heal their land. That's what God's been, been trying to do. It's interesting as you take a look at Elijah and Elijah, that whenever he first comes the prophet, becomes the prophet, Ahab is the one who's on the throne. And we've studied him and how a wicked king that he was and married to Jezebel. But in 2 Kings, the 13th chapter, when he is about to pass from this world, the king is now Joash. It's been like six different kings, six different administrations. And Elijah has served under them. It's been a period of about 50 years. So by the time you come to 2 Kings 13 chapter, Elijah is an old man by this particular time. And there's one last miracle that is attached with his life. And it's probably the most astounding miracle out of all of them. So I'm going to read to you from 2 Kings the 13th chapter beginning at verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Benadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So Jehoaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. Now that's kind of a tongue twister, and there's a whole lot of characters involved there, so let me simplify it. There's a king. (laughs) There's a nation. There's an enemy. They are being oppressed. Can we get that? So it's going to kind of focus on Jehoahaz first. He's the king over Israel. And he walks in the sins of Jeroboam. Following him will come his son Joash. And whenever we take a look at verses 14 through 21 in just a moment, it's Joash. It's his son. He's the one that is going to come and see Elijah. But just keep in mind at this particular time that you've got a king, God's king, over his people. And he's following the sins of Jeroboam. And so God allows this enemy to oppress his people. In verse 3, it says, The anger of the Lord was aroused against him, aroused against Israel. The point very simply is, they are being unfaithful. God is going to allow consequences. Can we see that? Now I want to add this as we get into this. God oftentimes uses things of a physical nature so that we can understand things of a spiritual nature. And so as you look at these stories that are contained in the Old Testament, these are physical realities that are taking place 
So to help us to make the spiritual application in this day and time and from the New Testament. So what I'm saying is that this particular time you have a king, you have a nation. They are not being faithful to God and God is going to allow their enemy to oppress them. There's going to be consequences for their actions. That's what it said. The king is Haziel. He's the king of Syria. Now I want to show you something. Back up to 2 Kings, the 8th chapter, because this is the particular instance where Haziel is going to become king over Syria and Elijah has gone to see him. Remember when we studied that? (laughs) Elijah goes to see Haziel before he's king. But Elijah also knows because God has let him see what Haziel is going to do to God's people. Now listen to this. 2 Kings, the 8th chapter, verse 12. And Haziel said, and he's speaking to Elijah, Why is my Lord weeping? He answered, this is Elijah now answering back, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and you will dash their children, and you will rip open their women with child. How's that sound? Pretty gruesome? Pretty brutal? You're going to destroy. You're going to set on fire their strongholds. Their young men, you're going to kill with the sword. Their children, you're going to dash them to pieces. And women are with child. You shall rip them open. Kill those kids, those babies, while they're still in the womb. So is there, a, is there a translation for that? Is there an application for that? I think there is. First of all, he says, you're going to set on fire. You're going to destroy their strongholds. Let me ask you something. What makes a nation strong? As we think about this day and time, we would think about fortified cities. We would think about cities that had walls built around them for safety. There's something that's keeping them safe. What is it that keeps this country safe? Do you know what God has given down through the ages? God has given three great institutions. You know what they are? They are the home. They are the government. They are the church. Those are the three great institutions that God has given down through the ages. And the home was first, followed by government, followed by the church. Those are the strongholds. Those are the things that help to keep a nation strong. 
And so he says, I'm going to destroy, or you're going to destroy the strongholds. Do you think in this country now that our enemy, do we have an enemy? See, he's pointing out at that particular time, here's Syria, here's a physical enemy that you can look at. But Paul will tell us later that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, <laughs> forces of wickedness, darkness. And so do you think those spiritual forces are trying to destroy our homes? Absolutely. And God also gave government. <laughs> you think it's trying to destroy government? You want to know what the role of government is? Read Romans the 13th chapter. It spells it out pretty simply. <laughs> do you know what the government is supposed to do? The government is supposed to protect the innocent and punish the wicked. It's pretty simple. But do you know what happens when one of those institutions does not function the way God designed it, the nation gets weaker. Is it happening today? And then there's the church. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth, right? We're supposed to hold up that light. And what happens when they don't? Those are the things that make a nation strong. And the enemy comes and tries to destroy it. And he says about Haziel, you will come and you will kill their young men with the sword. You know what that's saying? Young men will die by violence. Are there any men, young men dying by violence on the streets of our nation? Every day, every night, every weekend. Major cities. Young men die by violence. He says that he, you will dash their children. Some translations say you will dash them to pieces. And we think about physically. Well, let me ask you something. Can you dash a child to pieces in any other way? How about emotionally? How about intellectually? Psychologically? How about spiritually? I spent some time in schools. <laughs> you have too. You ever see little children that are emotionally stressed because of what's going on in their adult lives? <laughs> the adults around them. Do you ever see little kids that are stressed because they're confused? Yeah. You can dash a child to pieces without ever touching them physically. And then he says, your women with child, you'll rip them open. 
you'll kill that child in the womb. Any children being killed in the womb in this country? Every day. So Elijah, he weeps as he says, I know what you will do to God's people. Verse 3, God had became angry. God allowed their enemies to bring these consequences. Is that what God wanted? It's not what he wanted. He's been trying to call this nation back. He has sent Elijah. He has sent Elijah. He has performed miracles in their midst on numerous occasions to call them back. You know what Paul says over Galatians 6, chapter about verse 7 and 8? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, this he shall also reap. If you sow to the flesh from the flesh, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the Spirit from the Spirit, you shall reap eternal life. You know what we call that? <laughs> That's the law of sowing and reaping. It applies in the physical world. It applies in the moral world. It applies in the spiritual world. You're going to reap what you sow. And so they have been sowing to false gods and to the flesh and being unfaithful. And so God allows their enemies to bring consequences against them. But then it says that Jehoaz he cries out. So let me ask you this. Do you think consequences ever bring any good? So those of us who have raised a child, do you ever give a warning and then another warning and then you bring the heat? <laughs> consequences, right? And they learn. Consequences of their actions. And that's what God has done. There's consequences. But then Jehoaz cries out to the Lord. And you know what it says immediately? Immediately. It says that God heard him and sends a deliverer. Does that tell you anything about God? You turn and immediately... He's willing to take you back. And so Jehoaz cries out. And God sends a deliverer. And so verse 5 sort of makes the point for us. What's God's desire? It's not to punish, but it's to deliver. But if people are slow to listen, He'll allow consequences to to get their attention. 
2 Peter 3 and verse 9. For God is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but he is long suffering, not desiring that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's God's desire. But listen to verse 6, 2 Kings 13 and verse 6. So God sends a deliverer. Verse 6. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. So let me tell you quickly what they had done. We've studied that on Wednesday nights. And when Jeroboam became king over the northern tribes, what was the first thing he did? He sets up a place to worship in Dan and Bethel. Where were they supposed to go to worship? They were supposed to go to worship in Jerusalem. But he didn't want them going back, so he sets up worship in Dan and Bethel. They also were supposed to have priests from the tribe of Levi, but Jeroboam didn't like that, so he made his own priesthood. And then they had certain days for feast days. He didn't like that, so he added some feast days there. And then on top of all that, you know what else he did? He built these golden calves, these idols, and he pointed to them and he said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Had God brought them out of Egypt? Absolutely. But did God look like that? (laughs) No. But you know what the key point is? If you can change people's image of God, you can change the way they relate to God. Right? You change the image of God. And you'll change the way people relate to Him. You want verification? Go back to the book of Genesis, right? And so Satan comes to Adam and Eve. And what does he say? Wow, look at this. God put you in this garden. He created you. This is an amazing home He has given you. He has provided everything for you. This is an amazing God that you serve. Instead, He says, Is there any tree that you can't eat of? And they say, Well, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the midst of the garden, we're not supposed to eat of it. Because the day we do, we're going to die. And what's Satan do? No, you won't die. But the day that you eat of it, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So in other words, you think this God that you serve is a benevolent, loving God and has provided you with everything? Let me tell you, He's hiding something from you. You change the image of God and you'll change the way people relate to Him. So I want to just throw this out there just to add it briefly. Did God give Israel religion at Sinai? He absolutely gave them religion. He gave them feast days. He gave them a priesthood. He gave them sacrifices. He told them what day that they were to rest. He gave it all to them. Jeroboam comes along he changes it. Whatsoever things are written aforetime written for our learning... Heads up, folks. Has God told us how to worship Him today? Absolutely. It's revealed on the pages of the New Testament. 
what day we're supposed to meet and what acts of worship we're supposed to be engaged in. Why? Because God wants us to learn something from this. Just like He wanted them to learn something. But Jeroboam changed it. What's happening today? Look around. Is everybody worshiping the same? No, they're not. And has God revealed within His Word how we're to worship? Absolutely. And so do we have a right to change it? We have no more right than Jeroboam did. But if you change the image and you say, oh, God doesn't care, you'll change the way people relate to him. And that's what they did. And now they're walking in the sins of Jeroboam. And God desires to be merciful. But if they won't turn, then they will suffer the consequences. It should have motivated them. When God delivered them from their enemy, it should have motivated them to want to serve Him. Romans, the second chapter, about verse 7. Know ye not that the goodness of God worketh repentance look at the blessings he's brought shouldn't we serve him Romans 5 Cameron read it for us this morning right for while we were yet in our sins while we were helpless God sent his son to die for us Our enemy destroys our lives, destroys our homes, destroys our children. And what does God want? He wants us to turn to Him. But unfortunately, they didn't. Verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked in them also. So now his son, Joash, comes to the throne. He should have learned from the mistakes his father made. But he didn't. Do you think we should ever learn from the mistakes our fathers have made? Yet oftentimes we fail. So now we're going to see there's going to be this like partial turn. Second Kings 13 chapter, beginning at verse 14, reading down through verse 19. Elijah had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, so now this is the son that's come to the throne. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elijah said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. 
So he put his hand on it, and Elijah put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window, and he opened it. Then Elijah said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and he stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. So now Joash is on the throne. Elijah has become sick, which is kind of a sudden announcement. First Kings, the 19th chapter, Elijah kind of comes on the scene. And now we come to 2 Kings 13 chapter and he's, he's leaving. Life's about over. 50 years. But what's interesting about this particular instance though? There's no passing of the torch, so to speak. So you remember when God had called Elijah? And then now Elijah is going to pass from the scene and he tells him to anoint Elijah. But now Elijah is going to pass the scene and he's not telling him to anoint anybody. And so it's that. Wait a minute. So now, Joash hears that Elijah is going to pass from, or he may be dying, and he comes and he says, Joash the king of Israel came down to him and wept over his face and he said, Oh my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. That's similar to the words that Elijah spoke to Elijah when he passed or when he was taken up. These words are actually kind of symbolic. And what he is saying, he's saying, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen, symbolically speaking, you're you're our leader. You are the strength of this nation. That's what he's saying. Isn't it interesting? We've just been told Joash has been walking in the sins of Jeroboam. Right? But now he hears that Joash may, or that Elijah may die and he comes to him and he says, Oh, my father, my father. The chariots of Israel and their horsemen. So now he's concerned that this man of God may be dying. And he recognizes him as the strength of the nation. And he weeps over him. Where are we going to turn if you're gone, Elijah? What will happen to this nation if you're gone, Elijah? I wonder why he wasn't thinking about that before. Is there a point to be made? Remember what I told you about the home? About the government? About the church? 
Do you know a lot of folks that maybe aren't real concerned about that? But when it's gone, will you be concerned? There's an old saying, you never miss it. Till what? Till it's gone. So now Joash, he's concerned. It may be gone. You, Elijah, were the man of God. Proverbs 14 and verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now Joash is concerned about it. Proverbs 21 and verse 31 says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle. But the victory belongs to the Lord. You know what that means? It means it doesn't matter how many horses you got. (laughs) It doesn't matter how many chariots you got. It doesn't matter how many foot soldiers you got. The victory belongs to the Lord. He's the one who decides who's going to win and who's going to lose. A person came to Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the Civil War. It said to him, Mr. Lincoln, Mr. President, do you think the Lord is on your side? And he looked at him and he said, that's not the real question, whether or not the Lord is on our side. The real question is, are we on his side? Are we on his side? The victory belongs to the Lord. So in verse 15 and 16, Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from the Syria. You must strike the Syrians at Apec until you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrow. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck the ground three times and he stopped. Elijah says, open the east window. You know why he says, open the east window? Because that's where the Syrians were. So what's he saying? Take the arrow of the Lord and focus it against your enemies. And this is the way you shoot. And so he says, take a bow, take an arrow. You do what you're supposed to do. And then Elijah places his hands on his. And with the power of the Lord, take that and shoot it towards your enemy. And then he tells him, take the other arrows and strike the ground. And he only strikes it three times and he quits and Elijah is upset with him. When we look at that, we kind of wonder, well, what's what's going on? So let me ask you this question. If God said he was going to deliver you from your enemy, would you be excited about it? (laughs) Would you be excited about it? 
if God told you, I'm going to deliver your husband or your wife, your son or your daughter, your best friend, someone you love, I'm going to deliver them from their enemy. I'm going to deliver them from addiction, from drugs or alcohol. I'm going to deliver them from disease or illness. What would you say? That is amazing. That is wonderful. Or would you say, oh, that's nice. That's the equivalent of what the king did. This is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. He wants you to destroy your enemy. He is going to help you destroy that enemy. What do you think about that? Mm, That's nice. And so Elijah is upset. You should have been excited. You should have struck the ground several times. Till the enemy is utterly destroyed. Have you ever seen that happen? Where somebody is fighting against something... And they make a little progress. And it's like, okay, that's good enough. (laughs) We'll just leave it there. You know what happens? That enemy just regroups and comes after you again. And he said, you should have struck the ground until the enemy was utterly destroyed. And so he tells him, now, because of what you've done, you'll only have partial deliverance from them. You will strike them three times and that's it. And do you think after Joash struck Syria three times, do you think he might have been thinking, "Mm, sure wish I'd have struck it four (laughs) or five or a whole lot more. I'll read to you from Ephesians the sixth chapter. Because you think about Elijah speaking with Joash. And you think about the weapons that he has and you think about how he's telling him to direct those weapons and how to use them. And we think to ourselves, do we have weapons to fight this battle? Ephesians 6, chapter, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Do we have armor? He says yes. And this is the armor of God. Gird your waist with truth. Do you think we could use a little truth in society nowadays? We're not even sure who boys and girls are. Do you think we could use a little truth? He says take up the breastplate of righteousness. Apply it to yourself. Shod your feet with the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we ask ourselves, 
Are we fighting a physical battle? Or are we fighting a spiritual battle? We're fighting a spiritual battle, right? And so you know what you use when you fight a spiritual battle? You use spiritual weapons. And that's what God has given us. So that we can fight the enemy. So thirdly, the power of discernment. Verses 20. We get back to 2 Kings. I'm going to read verses 20 through 25. Now, 2 Kings 13, beginning at verse 20. Then Elijah died, and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elijah. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood on his feet. And Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. It's back to his father. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Hazael, king of Syria, died. Then Benhadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Joash, the son of Jehoaz, recaptured from the hand of Benhadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz, his father by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. So what's that? You struck the ground three times. Three times I'll give you victory. And so you got back some of the cities that your father had lost to Haziel, the king of Syria. So Elijah dies. And it kind of seems like the way Jehoash was viewing it, it's kind of like hope just faded. Elijah's gone, and now hope's gone. There's not another prophet that's coming on the scene. But then there's verse 21. This really strange thing happens. There's these Moabites. There's another enemy that's coming into Israel. And they are out there burying this guy, and they look up and they see their enemy coming. And what do they do? <laughs> they throw that guy in Elijah's tomb. And what do they do? They take off. The enemy's coming. And they're running. But the strangest thing. They throw this dead man into Elijah's tomb. And he touches Elijah's, Elijah's bones. He's brought back to life. And he stands on his feet. Dead man touches the bones of Elijah, that man of God. He comes back to life and he stands. So we look at that and you have to think, why here? Why now? Why is that there? 
when you see that? Do you think, maybe there's still hope in Israel. Elijah's dead. But this man comes in contact with the bones of that man of God. He comes in contact with that prophet, that man of God. And he's back to life. And he's standing on his feet. Is God still showing a little compassion to him? In verse 22. And Haziel king of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them. And had compassion on them. And regarded them. Why? Because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Why was God willing to do that? Why was God willing to give them a reprieve? Because of the covenant that he had made with Abraham. You know what the covenant was that he made with Abraham? Through your seed, Abraham, I'm going to bring one who is going to bless all nations of the earth. So God's faithful to his promise. I'm not going to allow these people to be destroyed because I'm going to bring one through them that is going to bless all nations of the earth. And so out of death, out of death came life. Can we see that? I'll turn to the New Testament, Matthew, the 27th chapter. Just read a couple of verses and we'll kind of wrap this, wrap this up. Matthew 27 and verses 50 through 53. This is Jesus hanging on the cross. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holiest city and appeared to many. So what's Matthew record for us? When Jesus died, were there some who thought all hope was gone? What happened to the apostles after Jesus was arrested? They all scattered. And then he's taken and nailed to the cross and he's put to death. And they think all hope is gone. And Matthew now records for us that when he dies, what happens? The earth shook. Rocks split. Graves opened and bodies of the saints came forth and went into the city and were seen by men. So what was God declaring? Three days later, Jesus is going to be resurrected. And so what he's saying is from death, there comes life. And this man of God has died 
But if you come in contact with that man of God, you know what could happen? You can be brought back to life. Let me read to you from Romans, the sixth chapter. Romans 6, beginning at verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him. Does that sound familiar? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. See what happened in the Old Testament? That dead man came in contact with the prophet of God, the man of God, and when he did, he was revived and stood on his feet. And so what Paul is saying spiritually, when we come in contact with the death of Jesus Christ, we are buried with him, that we can be raised to walk in newness of life. That we can overcome our enemy. So with Elijah, there was one last miracle. And what was it saying? That God can bring dead men back. That God can bring dead men back to life. And he still does it today. Through Jesus Christ. Elijah was just kind of that forerunner and helped us to understand that there was still hope there, just like there's still hope today through Jesus Christ. And we can overcome our end. I want to extend the invitation now to any and all that are here. If you've never rendered obedience unto the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'd encourage you to do that this very day. Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. We can help you in any way. You let us know while together we stand and while we sing.